Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to part two of my interview with Dr. Anders Ericsson, the author of the book Peak, perhaps the world's expert on how to become an expert. Have you found in your experience that there are certain kinds of people who are better suited, I hate to use that word loosely, better suited to become experts than others? I would basically argue here that in order to be able to kind of invest and actually work and try to you know, take on challenging cases as opposed to cases that, you know, are simple. That's, I think, associated with an, a development of habits. So if we look at musicians and chess players that we've looked at, what they tend to do is that they have a pretty rigid schedule here where they every day, you know, would spend two, three hours in the morning basically engaging in these training activities. And basically they realize that there's kind of a limit you know, to how much they can push themselves. So then the rest of the day, they would be doing other things that would be much less demanding. But I think that idea here of, because we know that a lot of people find it challenging to do things that are demanding. So what you want to do is to avoid this decision here about, you know, people asking, you know, do I enjoy this or not? You know, you just start in the morning and then basically you engage in it and then you have a real sense of satisfaction here once you are done with your training and you would now move on to do other things. So, for example, authors are also basically spending two or three hours in the morning writing, and the rest of the day they basically use it to relax and basically recuperate and making sure that they get enough sleep. So the next morning they would be able to perform at their highest level. Going back full circle, we're trying to get more people to understand that they need to develop this business mindset, whether they choose to do it at a novice level or a higher level, not necessarily all the way to deliberate practice, naive practice, purposeful, and then deliberate. They may not all become experts, but if they followed this four-step methodology you have, they can get better from wherever they are right now. Right, and I think it would be really interesting to kind of stimulate more types of activities that would involve business and new kind of initiatives, even at the high school level and college level, where actually you would get students involved in these activities and finding, seeking out possible products that they could generate and then provide now with learning opportunities and also teachers and coaches that could actually support their development here at smaller scale, because I think, you know, it's once you look at these other domains, there is kind of a trajectory here where you kind of start out, you know, and, and I think when it comes to financing and, and figuring out how you would be able to reach a given audience, I think there are all sorts of methods that the vast majority of individuals just don't know. So even if they have a good idea and are motivated here to try to do it, they don't really aren't aware of, of the kind of steps that they would need to take 
to be able to, you know, have a chance here to a successful attempt. So if there was a framework and a methodology that can guide them, and they had some kind of an expert coach, you know, the way you described the coach. Right. And, and actually, I've been talking to some private schools, the Nueva School in San Francisco and some other ones. And there, they actually allow students in high school to basically identify something that they want to do. And then the school is actually finding a teacher that would allow a given student now to engage in a project that basically, you know, I guess often would have some financial implications. And I think basically that struck me as a really interesting opportunity that maybe if one is thinking about it, you know, could be applied here and made available to a much larger group of students. Switching gears a little bit, in your research finding, you said that novices have very simple mental representations. Is that the same thing as mental models? What is a mental representation? So if we take something like, you know, driving a car, I would argue that, you know, People actually learn how to do it, and then eventually, you know, they would be driving with their parents and maybe with a driving instructor. But what's interesting is that most of our habitual activities, people want to minimize the effort that's involved. And essentially, when you actually drive, it becomes very automatic, and you basically are behaving in certain ways. And it's interesting when people get surprised by a snowstorm and are not ex- you know, used to snow, they're basically uh, in real jeopardy because they don't know how to handle and basically be driving in a safe manner. So we would argue that it's kind of almost like a automatic kind of effect here of once you do things over and over, you try to find the most simplest way that you can actually execute that type of activity. So if you actually ask somebody, you know, when they're driving to close their eyes, hopefully they're standing still at the time, and see what they're paying attention to. And basically what I would argue is you're likely to find a very rudimentary description here of basically where they are and basically what all the other cars around them are about to do. And what we're finding is that the same thing would hold true for people who play various sports, team sports on an amateur level, But what's interesting is that as you get more skilled, people actually develop a much better representation here of what other players are doing, the teammates and the opposing players. And they also are able to read cues about what people are about to do. So that actually provides now these more skilled players a much better foundation here for making decisions if they were to get the ball. What should they be doing with the ball to maximize the opportunity to you know, have a positive outcome or maybe even scoring. So basically, they take all of the cues and the data from the external environment and integrate them in a certain way, and that's the mental representation, that enables them to make decisions faster. Exactly, and you can actually get information about that mental representation of maybe stopping them and, and shutting off basically the visual input and then ask them to recall here what is actually going on outside of them. And what you find is that the more skilled individuals will be able to give a much more accurate picture of what's happening outside of you, suggesting that they have that in their brain because once you cut off the visual input, that's the place where that information has to come from. 
business world, there are many people, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's right-hand guy is a guy called Charlie Munger. He talks a lot about mental models. It's uh, very similar in description to what uh, you just described. See, what I've found in looking at people is I've developed a little acronym for myself, LAPHR, L-A-P-H-R. So if you learn something new, you need to first act it out. You need to practice it. Only then does it kind of become real in your head. Then if it's something you want to take on or include in your repertoire, you need to develop a habit of doing that. That's the H. And then if you get a series of these habits, so like say in your case, driving a car, uh, let's say you learn a new method for looking in your blind spot. You kind of have to do it a couple of times and you practice it while you're driving and then make it a habit and say, you know, I'm going to look over my right shoulder for one second every 50 feet and making this up. And then you need to weave it into a ritual where you say, anytime I'm driving every 50 feet, I'm going to look over my right shoulder or Every time I want to change lanes, I'm going to look over my right shoulder. And then at that point, it becomes a ritual, which is a combination of habits every time you change your lane. And it started with the L, L-A-P-H-R. You know, I think that makes tremendous sense. And, and I guess the only thing I would possibly add is that as you get more skilled, it's more a matter of basically making modifications and repairs to your mental representations. For example, if you find now that in certain cases here where your vision is blocked, you know, that you would be reminded here that there could be somebody walking out here. And, mm-hmm. and that's actually something that they've demonstrated now with emergency uh, drivers who are, you know, ambulance drivers, that they have developed now that skill of basically being able to anticipate problems far more accurately than basically average drivers who are not basically paying attention to what could possibly be basically coming out behind a vehicle or some obstructing object. Which kind of brings me to another very interesting thing I read in your research. Uh, You know, at Carnegie Mellon, you studied two students. You had two subjects. The first guy was a Greenfield. He started from scratch. He only had seven digits, I think, and then went up to, I think, 75, right? 82, but who's counting? (laughs) Okay, 82. Okay. See, my point is, the second guy who came in, uh, I forget his name, when he came in, he had the benefit of talking to the first guy, and he said, here are some techniques that I used in order to remember more digits. But the most interesting thing I found was, the second guy got up to a certain number of digits, I forget what it is, 25 or something like that, and then he hit a wall, and then he figured out his own way of looking at the problem or extending the problem or getting out of the comfort zone. I don't know what you call it. And then he took off and he exceeded 82. Yeah, he basically eventually got over 100. And I think basically, I guess my point would be that given we collected, you know, protocols after each trial, we were able to kind of monitor how the two individuals, how they actually changed the way they were encoding the information to be able to kind of encode it more effectively in long-term memory so they would be able to recall it. They weren't just rehearsing digits. They were actively constructing ways to represent these numbers so they would actually be able to, you know, retrieve the information and then translate it into numbers so they could actually reproduce the presented sequence of random digits. 
What is interesting is that today, I guess the current record is around 500 digits that people can actually, you know, when they're presented, one per second reproduce. Now, the new generation of individuals, I would argue, are relying more on deliberate practice because they actually studied with memory teachers. So they, instead of doing what our subjects were doing, they had to start out at seven digits and then incrementally get better and better. They could actually come up with a system that they translate each of the two-digit numbers into images and then maybe constructed combinations of two images to create now unique images for uh, four-digit combinations. And then they also relied on a very different system for storing these images. And I guess I would argue that that's just proof here that if you actually learn the correct fundamentals, you may in fact be able to get further than if you're more or less doing what our two subjects were doing. You know, they were trying to figure it out for themselves and we didn't know what was possible, so we certainly couldn't, you know, guide them as to what they should be doing. Here is the thing that I found interesting, a parallel that I drew. The first guy got to 82, and the second guy hit a wall, but then he had to come up with his own mental representation, and then he was able to you know, blow past 82. Would that indicate that there are limits to role modeling? In other words, you are an excellent role model of a successful businessman, and I say, I want to model myself, my behaviors, my beliefs, my values, my practices, similar to what Dr. Erickson does. But if I did that, I would only get to a certain level of success, which is limited, until I come up with my own variations or my own mental representations, which will then help me to propel much higher, much farther. I would argue that we probably don't know the answer to that question. I think looking at what structures they eventually relied on in order to you know, remember these long sequences, I think if you look at them from a higher level, they're very similar in the sense that, you know, they use grouping of uh, three and four digit groups, and they basically built these hierarchical systems in order to memorize now what order their groups were. I think we're just at the beginning here of trying to understand what actually people who are exceptional are doing. And I think the point that I would want to emphasize is Instead of just trying to rehearse the digits to kind of improve now your ability to report them back, what our subjects were doing was fundamentally different. They actually tried to store them now in long-term memory that we basically don't really know of any very clear limitations for. And that was a key here. And that's the sort of the general principle that we see for experts, how they actually develop now a superior performance in a particular domain with particular materials. And, and that gets back to what we started out talking about, how individuals can be exceptional in chess, but basically once you give them some other kind of task domain that they're unfamiliar with, you know, they're no different from novices. What is long-term memory? Well, basically in psychology, you differentiate here between the kind of information that you can kind of hold on to that is sort of in attention or that you can kind of keep rehearsing. And that's quite limited. So 
people would say, you know, about a phone number, so seven digits. Long-term memory would be that kind of information that once you try to recall something, say at the end of a training session, that basically represents now information that was stored more permanently in your memory. And one of the interesting things with the memory experiment that we talked about, how you train people to get better at, you know, repeating back random sequences of numbers, read one per second, was that these individuals could then recall almost all of the digits that have been presented as being part now of different trials. So they could recall maybe 300 digits that were, you know, part of different sequences of different lengths at the end, suggesting here that they were really storing things more permanently in their memory than this short-term memory where you kind of just hold on to information and once you stop thinking about it, it's essentially gone. I keep going back to the two-student memory experiment. If, if this uh, guy could uh, model and uh, emulate the techniques of the first guy, the second guy could do that of the second, first guy, he should have been easily able to get to 82 simply uh, based simply upon the first guy's model. I think that's a really good point. point. I believe that essentially there's a uh, limit there's here on what you can communicate. So you can actually give more of a direction. But when it comes to the actual real-time task of actually now converting digits and, and, and what these individuals both were using was making relationships between, say, a three-digit group and a running time for races, in a way that make it distinctive and retrievable from long-term memory. So, for example, 412 could be, you know, 4 minutes and 12 seconds a mile time. That is, you know, very fast. So the argument that we would make is that building these conceptual structures where you would be able to encode it and also, you know, make it so unique that you don't basically had interference here from other sequences in the same training session. That's the real challenge. And, and I would argue that any amount of instruction basically would not allow somebody to basically immediately be able to get to 80 digits. I think it's a little bit more sort of, if you think about, you know, running a 5K race, you can basically spend lecture to your individuals here you know, for hours, maybe three weeks about what they should be doing. And then once they get out on the track, I don't think that there's going to be a huge difference here. They're going to actually have to engage in the training to make now these physiological changes that are necessary for them to be able to run fast. So basically, I would argue that there may be not that kind of shortcut that we would like in, in the same way that there is a shortcut. If there is a factual piece of information, somebody would tell you, and now you have that piece. When you're building uh, when you're skill, build it's more something that has to be built up like a house. So if you think about the house analogy, you know, you could tell people about how to build a house, but basically they're going to have to build their own house, and it's going to take a lot of time, even if they have the knowledge about how to put it together step by step. And it will perhaps take longer as well. Basically, I, I think there is a limiting factor. Now, I do agree that if you basically are working on the wrong strategy, yeah. then we know that you can basically spend 
tremendous amount of time without making improvement. But if you're exploring a workable strategy, there's still going to have to be that investment in building the skill that allow you to do the thought processes under the real-time constraints of the task. The limits of role modeling and uh, good advice on not seeking shortcuts and expecting 100% results. Yeah, and, and I think the one thing that I would like to emphasize is this idea that if we believe in this idea of skill, you need to have those practice opportunities. And I would argue that a lot in education is sort of getting lectures, but not basically that chance of applying it so you can actually build up these mental representations that allow you to, in real time, now perform at a higher level and generate basically these mental representations of your current situation so you basically are able to select the best action in the uh, situation in the, that you face. That's actually even more acute in the business realm because if I have to give you a pick a number, $50,000, so that you can go and make some decisions and uh, succeed or fail, I'm gambling $50,000. So you need to come up with uh, credible uh, scenarios yeah. or, or situations or constructs which allow people to uh, practice and learn. Exactly, and, and I think that's really fascinating. And it would seem to me that if we could help people avoid you know, the frustrations here of making mistakes that could have been avoided with the better training, I think there's a lot of value, and, and both for individuals as well as our society. I guess the thing I'm picking up here is people can become experts through extended, deliberate practice, focused practice, repeated action, and they need to go beyond their comfort zone. And I think you coined the term in the book, you called them, you said, in addition to being homo sapiens or homo erectus, human beings need to become homo exorcists. Right. You know, that idea here that you can actually change. I think is something that, especially when we can provide now teachers who can demonstrate how other individuals like yourself have been able to reach, you know, the level that you want to reach. I think that's just incredibly motivating. And the process here of providing these opportunities, I think we're going to be learning more about how we can help people, you know, to effectively change themselves and become more successful. The homo Exorcence means a practicing human being, correct? Exactly, that a modifiable person, uh, that you are, you know, a human who can modify your own abilities. And I guess what we are emphasizing is you don't have to just figure out how to change yourself. You know, by finding a teacher with the right kind of credentials who've shown that they've been able to help other individuals improve, that would seem to be the best recommendation that we could come up with. Find a good teacher who has been there, done it, understands the roadmap, and who can guide you through the process or guide you on the journey. Exactly. And, and I think basically that idea here of explicating what you're thinking uh, so the teacher can actually identify more directly here uh, things that you should be considering that you didn't or identify weaknesses that might actually suggest that you should be working on a particular set of cases that would allow you now to develop that particular aspect of your decision-making. 
Excellent. Dr. Erickson, many thanks for taking time to come on uh, Business Thinking Radio. I enjoyed our discussion and look forward to having you back as more and more people listen to this and become experts. Well, I would love that. And, and maybe we could interest somebody to build up that kind of library to allow people to practice particular aspects of decision-making when it comes to making judgments here about investing in certain types of projects. Yeah, I will certainly look into that. Thanks for listening to Business Thinking Radio. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please send an email to podcast at businessthinking.com. This is Ram Ayer signing off. Thank you for listening to the Ram Ayer Podcast. Every week, we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter, and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Ayer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts at mitramayer.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramayer.com forward slash podcasts or find the Ram Ayer podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded.